Hello, and welcome to Lots of Familiar, the show that remembers that when Blue Peter did its clip show review of the year of 1986, for no apparent reason it was lit by Janet Ellis, Mark Curry and Peter Duncan, literally walking like Egyptians to walk like an Egyptian. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that no one ever seems to, is writer Catherine Lowe. Catherine, what you're to, where can we find it? Well, the nice people at Betamax Video Club podcast have let me take up quite a bit of space these last few months. So you can find me on various episodes there, talking to Rich Nelson about comedy films like Wayne's World and Moonstruck and A Fish Called Wonder. And it's a really great podcast for film fans, so it's really worth checking out. There's lots of great guests. And otherwise, I'm on Twitter banging on about music and theatre and film, among other things. So please come and say hello to me there. I'm at Kitty Costanza. OK, well, there is music in your first choice. And weirdly, as I'll come back to, it's in a more recent comedy drama film. And it was the record I least expected to see in there. But let's just have a listen to what might be a very familiar voice. Play School and Play Away. Catherine, what was this? This was an album of songs from BBC TV's Play School and Play Away released in the mid-80s. The two main vocalists on the album were Floella Benjamin and Brian Kant. And I was so into it as an album. And I had it on heavy rotation at the end of the 80s. It was around the time that I liked things like Cuts Both Ways by Gloria Estefan and Runaway Horses by Blues Carlisle. <laughs> I, it was just, that's the thing. I appreciated it as the great album that it was. And it was this mixture of standards like Dear Is Hang Low and My Hat It Has Three Corners, like mixed with those original songs. You know, one of them was Reggae Rita. One of them was, I think it was called like Blue Blues. One of them was called Fish Disco. Yes! Greatest <laughs> songs of all time. The thing about it, which I only sort of appreciate retrospectively, is how it was introducing kids to different genres of popular music. So like, you know, you had the blues in there, you had reggae, you had disco and, you know, sort of mixed up with these kind of, you know, sort of nursery rhymes type things. But it's just a great mix and in its own way quite sort of educational in a really fun way about music yes i mean one thing i will say about it is that floella benjamin does not get enough credit for her contribution to multiculturalism i mean obviously you know i'm from liverpool and from the very first moments in school it was always quite racially mixed and even so you know i just took floella benjamin singing you know things like reggae beta or play school at face value on this there's actually a track called jump up time which i think is a medley of is it a Gion and strain of scar and reggae jump up but it's like you know songs from that genre there was also one called caribbean medley this incredible kind of fusion of different kind of influences all feeding into one album it was her songs that i liked the best i think the one that was sort of bluesy that was about a girl obsessed with the color blue who goes on a long search for blue food and finally finds her true love in the form of a blueberry pie it was just so cool and she just had such great presence. 
did you know there was actually, because obviously I've written a book about BBC Records and tapes and I'm working on a sequel to it. Obviously, Singing in the Band is covered in that, but in the first volume, which is about the singles, did you know Reggae Rita was actually released as a single? And the B-side yeah. was a dub version of it credited to Dr. Dredd Gosling. Now, I have mixed feelings about this. It's Peter Gosling, the play school and playaway musician, had taken it among himself to do a dub version and credited himself as Dr. Dredd Gosling, which is simultaneously the best and the worst thing ever. Oh my god, that's amazing. You can't just <laughs> imagine what the dub version's like, I'm sure. Oh, I'd love to hear the dub version. Did it get into the chart? It didn't, no. But the weird thing about the play school albums particularly even more than because there were separate play school and playway ones and some sort of joint ones like this it's interesting that they did change over time and some of the early ones almost although you know they didn't come within a mile of the charts there's in particular bang on the drum which is the first album songs of play school and playway because they were all kind of like singer songwriters who weren't exactly pulling in the crowds play school presented yeah. at that point all the songs on there could be off you know an album that's now worth 300 quid by some acid folk outfit and it's surprising that it didn't cross over more at the time i mean the big track on there obviously is bang on the drum which has been sampled by everyone from eric b and rakeem to prince amazing i did not know that but then as time goes on you get people like philo benjamin coming in bringing their influences into it and the idea that people have of play school as just being you know quite kind of posh and genteel and patronizing and some toys is wrong really oh it's completely wrong there's something about that album as well like you have i think the first time i heard of delia smith was on this album because brian Kant has this song about cooking and takes you through all the different steps that he does when he you know puts pancakes and this that the other i remember thinking oh i wonder who delia smith is and that that thing as well about the invention behind it the thing about kind of like we're going to do a really good disco song about fish being the only ones that know how to disco they're the only ones that know how to rock and roll it's like people that not only have a really good musical sensibility but a really good sense of humor as well yeah brian camp we've not really mentioned so far again they were saying you know play school and play away kind of adapted with the times he was almost the same throughout and yet he fitted with every era of it perfectly well one of those people wasn't he just like a really lovely building you could appreciate it at any time Yeah, I just I, I have I have all of these kind of memories of it keeping me occupied. This album, like there was this fossil museum that used to be quite near where I grew up in North Wales. It was in this place called Pentrith. Still there now. It's called Stone Science, and I have these memories of waiting for my family to finish up there because my family loved things like fossils. And I'd just be sitting in the car listening to this album on a loop and really, really enjoying it, just learning every word. I owe them a lot. And I wish it was more widely available now. I can't get my hands on it. Well, given that you were probably still listening to it in the late 80s, you must have got on well with the lead character. And have you seen Pride? I have seen Pride, yes, I have. Did you notice this album appear in it? I did not, no. No, it's the moment when the lead character decides he's throwing his lot in with... When he decides that he's pursuing this new way of life and new fashions and new friends and so on, he goes to his bedroom, he puts aside a copy of Singing in the Band and moves on to something more exciting. Oh, no! (laughs) I'm outraged. That's terrible. I would still be playing it now on a loop, I'm sure, if I still had the tape, but I think I just wore it out. This is a shame Dominic West didn't teach them to dance the fish disco, really. That would be... (gasps) Completely! It's a really, really brilliant, really brilliant album, and I think that they... You know, people my age just 
really appreciated that era of play school, I think. There's so much affection for Flora Benjamin. You can really feel it. You know, it's her birthday the other day on Twitter and people just went crazy. And I, I totally see why. OK, well, moving on to your second choice now, which was a guy who was kind of a contemporary fellow of Benjamin. But this was him trying to move in another direction. And I bet you've all forgotten the theme song. I'm the best, so do not test the top of my profession. The master of my chosen field, of that there is no question. Serious, serious profession. Serious, serious profession. Okay, that was Serious Profession by Omar, the short-lived early 90s acid jazz chart star of There's Nothing Like This and Keep Stepping fame. But that's actually the theme from... What was it the theme from, Catherine? It was the theme from a sitcom from 1993 called Chef which starred Lenny Henry and was made by Lenny's own production company called Crucial Films. It was written by Peter Tilbury, who had been an actor and then wrote for some other sitcoms as well. I think maybe Birds of a Feather, amongst others. And it ran for three series. In it, Lenny Henry plays a chef called Gareth Blackstock, who's the head chef at a French restaurant in Oxfordshire. And yeah, people don't really talk about it now. I don't really understand why, because I think the first series in particular is really beautifully made. It's like kind of shot like a film. So it's more like a kind of comedy drama in some ways than a conventional sitcom. And second series sort of carried on the same vein. And then the third series that came a bit later in the 90s, I think it was 96, was I think because of BBC budget cuts just kind of like a completely different program made in a way that was sort of much more like a conventional sitcom. But I think the first series in particular is really underrated. Yes, when you watch it again now, it's nothing like anything you would see now. It's very much in a good way of its time because it's got that early 90s optimism of it. And there was a feel around that time that, you know, new comedy stuff was coming in. This began in 1993. Lenny Henry been trying to do different things with of years he'd done Bernard and the Genie True Identity he had a new sketch show as opposed to his 80s one on BBC One where the only thing anyone remembers about it now is that Lee and Herring stole a bit of the model of the set from a rehearsal room and it's in the <laughs> Fist of Fun book The Stolen War from the model of the set <laughs> sadly that's the only thing I can remember about it but he'd be trying you know to move in different directions this was around the time things were coming on things like Men Behaving Badly was very big the day-to-day was in production the smell of Reeves and Mortimer was about to come out everything seemed to be while it wasn't cutting edge high tech and so on there seemed to be a new kind of optimism and good feeling about comedy this was very much part of that because Lenny had reinvented himself once in the 80s when he could see the way the wind was blowing when alternative comedy came in and he went a bit more in that direction and then obviously this was him sensing that something else was in the air and changing very effectively I think yeah I think that it was a really quite sophisticated programme. And actually, if you think about what was happening in America, it would have been the same year as Frasier came out. And actually, the style of comedy of the first series of Chef is really, in some ways, quite similar to Frasier, I think, because you have Gareth as the centre of it, and he takes what he does for a living really seriously in the same way as Frasier does. And he's constantly sort of coming up against these dilemmas where in order to 
kind of keep afloat. He's having to deal with the temptation of kind of dumbing down the art form of cookery. So like sort of having to maybe give a tabloid interview or maybe let cameras into his kitchen to film a fly on the wall documentary. And, you know, he doesn't want to make any compromises and he's constantly kind of frustrated uh, elements of British culture where, you know, really rich people will come and eat at his restaurant and they'll ask for salt before tasting the food (laughs) drive him crazy i mean there's this really fantastic scene i think it's in the second episode where someone asks for salt and he kind of delivers this monologue that really reminds me of meryl streep in the devil wears prada she has this fantastic scene where she takes someone down about them being a bit kind of sniggery about kind of you know like why would you care whether or not this belt is blue or maybe it's a sweater it's this fantastic kind of defense of the care and the concentration and the art that goes into fashion and you know it's quite similar to gareth's rant about why can't someone appreciate you know all the kind of labor that's gone into making a perfect plate of food yeah and as i was saying it's it does remind me of some of the stuff that was happening in america and you know and as we know fraser went on to be the most successful comedy of all time or certainly one of them whereas yeah people don't seem to refer to chef now at all over here what's really weird about it watching it now is that it kind of predicts the celebrity mega chefs that were going to appear over the next couple of years because they hadn't really at this point because i mentioned the smell of reeves mortimer before in series one of that the parody they do with tv cookery is a food and drink which is you know that's the style how it was and it's people like Baza yes. jaffrey you know where their skills with food were first not their personality and then later you got you know gary rhodes gordon ramsay jamie oliver and so on who gareth is sort of predicting a bit not just in terms of the character but also the way one of the underlying storylines of it is there's a kind of tension with his wife in that she wants to start a family and he's very very focused on his career and it's not that he's consciously neglecting her on that basis it's just that he seems never to have the time or the energy and that yeah. in a way predicted the way you know one of my problems with certain gentlemen i'm not going to pick out individual chefs to name here in case <laughs> i get in legal trouble but some of them seem to parade their wives and children in their kind of you know their fly on the wall programs almost as accessories to what they're doing yeah and it sort of anticipates that bit really completely that's the thing i mean it's in some ways it's a it's quite a gentle comedy but it's also quite truthful about the toll that kind of job can take on someone and their relationship I mean I think that she Caroline Lee Johnson who plays Janice is so good in it and I think their relationship is so convincing there's also quite a nice subversion of some of the gender roles in the sense that Gareth is the one that's really bad with money and Janice really knows how to handle money and she you know knows how to run a business and also she's the one that's sexually frustrated because as you say he's often very tired and whereas quite often in situation comedy, British situation comedies, sort of in the past, it would have been the other way around, you know. So it isn't just the fact that she wants to have a family. She also just wants to have sex, you know. So that's quite refreshing. It really sort of holds up some of those things, I think, now. It doesn't, there's lots about it that doesn't feel cliched, you know. And one interesting thing, particularly the first series, just lower down the cast list. This changed later on, particularly with series three, like you say, but there were quite a few people in it who, well, there were two former child actors, but there were a lot of people who clearly were people he'd met along the way who'd never quite got the breaks. 
And he thought of them first when making the sitcom, which I think is an incredible thing to do. But the two that really leapt out of me are Poi Fan Lee, who she's much more well known now, but she was kind of, I think she was part of the Central Television Junior Workshop or whatever it was called, that were in things like Your Mother Wouldn't Like It and Hardwick House. Oh, wow, yeah. She had quite a bitty career around then. She was one of the Teletubbies as well, but obviously he had thought she's good and putting her in this. She's really good in it. But also, Erkan Mustafa, who was Roland in Grange Hill, who for oh, my that's... money, I think he's a decent actor who just got typecast by the fact he played one very iconic character. Never yeah. really seemed to get much else to do, but in this, he's not just asked to be Roland in the kitchen. Yeah. He's a very different character. He was basically, this is going to sound weird, but his character is that he's competent. He can do the job. He's the one without issues. Yes. And that is quite important in the comic dynamic, really. Oh, completely. Completely. And I think that Roger Griffiths, who plays Everton, is also really yes. good. Yes. Again, somebody Lenny Henry had worked with a lot previously. Yeah. He does a lot with without actually sort of having that many lines. He has a kind of inner life that's really sort of effective for that kind of role. And you really relate to it. If you've ever been in a job where you're kind of inwardly panicking, thinking, you know, Fuck, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> He's really good at conveying that sense of I'm totally out of my depth, you know. Uh, he's a really good comedy actor, and I wish he was in more stuff. And also in that first series, you have Claire Skinner, of course, who yes. went went on to great success and outnumbered. Yeah, as you say, there's just lots of people in it because the cast changes quite a lot between series. So by the end of it, you have an accumulation of lots of really fantastic actors, you know, really giving it their all. And you did also mention while we were discussing it that obviously Lanny Henry had been an actual Radio 1 DJ in the early 80s, but he made the return to Radio 1 around the time Chef made his debut. And you mentioned you were quite hooked by that. Yeah, he did. I think it was, it might have been on Easter Monday in 1994. They let him do, I think it was an hour on Radio 1 in the afternoon. And I taped it off the radio, the show that he did, because I really liked Lenny Henry. And I can remember him playing stuff that I'd never heard on Radio 1 before. He played Sly and the Family Stone. He played Funkadelic. He played, you know, so, so many just great, great things that like and I've never heard some of this kind of like classic funk before he interspersed it with some of his like comedy sketches I think he had one called Mr. Terminator (laughs) Mr. Motivator where it just had him removing different bit like removing his spleen at some point and stuff you know just the point was like you were having such a big workout that you just kind of basically sort of remove bits of your body and had a bit where he pretended to take a call from his mum I think and I I think they let him do another one later on the same year in 94 I think maybe in the kind of August bank holiday and I take that one as well and I just listened to them both to death I thought I really wanted him to be on all the time but he was on as you say in the 80s I'm really sad that I wasn't you know I would have been very young and not switched on enough to be able to catch him then yeah I wish there was more of that around because really not very much of it has turned up online he had the live show and it was initially Sundays for three hours and it later moved to Saturdays and it was just fantastic because I think lightly and later did he uses an excuse to try out new characters new ideas and it was just post his was it was when he was just starting to do three of a kind and so on he was trying all these new things had people like musical youth and tipperary doing jingles playing all this incredible music his producer assures me he was the first person in daytime to play culture club 
who were kind of really? seen at first as a sort of like John Peel, Kid Jensen, Janice Long band. Yeah. And he was like, they are fantastic. I've got to promote them more. So do you really want to hurt me? It's down to Lenny Henry, really. That is amazing. He did that. And then later in the decade, when the rave thing took off, and obviously he'd been Delbert Wilkin in his sitcom on BBC One. Yeah. He occasionally came back on things like New Year to do Delbert Wilkins doing like illegal raves on Radio <laughs> 1. There was one where the car broke down on the way to the rave and he actually did bits of it from, you know, I'll assume it was mocked up but from Delbert's car phone presenting it. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, that sounds brilliant. I so wish he I had this long association with Radio 1 and none of it is out there. That's so annoying because that was the thing about that Radio 1 programme that he did was the music choices were so good but also so eclectic. So as well as having the funk, you'd also have like Roxy Music and T-Rex and Elvis Costello. And I remember him playing the most beautiful girl in the world because that was like the current print song that was out at that time and Carlene Anderson and Janet Jackson and so you know it was just like it just felt like someone that that knew their music that just had good taste had been allowed on that didn't have to necessarily adhere to what the playlist would be that time if you know what I mean like I really liked Live and Unleashed which was his stand-up kind of film that he did at the end of the 80s I think they must have shown it on TV at the beginning of the 90s and I taped it off the TV and that as well like had a kind of quite a strong musical component I think it has a bit where he sings Kiss by Prince I think I did have a bit of a crush on him I mean he was quite his presence you know he's got a big presence Lenny Henry I saw him at the National Theatre in a comedy of errors a few years back and I did think yeah but you know I can sort of see how he's gone on to be quite a successful theatre actor because he's just one of those people that are quite quite magnetic it's just a shame that I mean he obviously wanted to pursue music quite seriously because he did do some halfway serious records at some points because there was a Theophilus P. Wilderby single that was you know it was in character but it was a proper late 80s kind of not quite hip-hop but you know soul jazz there was a Delbert Wilkins rap record he's on the Kate Bush record isn't he yes he is is it on the red shoes I think yes yeah. yeah And yeah, I saw the other day <laughs> when I was thinking about this, I YouTubed that duet that he did with Tom Jones on Comic Relief. Like, it sounds ridiculous to say this because Tom Jones is such a, you know, legend and also also Welsh, so I can't kind of slight him at all. But Lenny Henry, like, really keeps up with Tom Jones. <laughs> Like it's a like it's a genuinely really quite good musical duet. Like they've both got fantastic voices. I mean, obviously it's really funny as well because they've got these you know flashing cod pieces. Um, but still, still it's all like it's almost kind of too technically good to be properly laugh out loud funny because you sort of you find yourself watching it, nodding your head, going, "Yes, yeah, this, this is excellent, guys." <laughs> Another thing about a chef as well, and I, I wonder whether maybe that's why it's not remembered as fondly as you might think, is that it makes you realise that in so many of the British comedy sort of sitcoms and stuff that we like, there's this sort of element of self-loathing and real cynicism, and like even in, you know something like Faulty Towers, which would obviously be probably the biggest UK sitcom that's ever ever happened it's got this real sort of feeling of cynicism about marriage and stuff and even though as you say like there's quite a toll being taken on Gareth Blackstock's marriage it feels really quite positive about the idea of of being with someone who you know whether like the two of you your different skills sort of complement each other's and it also feels quite positive about honing a craft like getting really good at something and being you know sort of like working your way to the top of your field and then 
and excelling and kind of showing people what you can do. So maybe there is just in order to kind of think of a British comedy as being really good, maybe we only accept things that have a certain amount of self-loathing to them. <laughs> and if they're too optimistic, we reject them. I don't know. There's probably something in that, but I suspect you may have done more rejecting yourself or some of the characters in your next choice, which I really hope that you stopped playing this by the time that Chef was on. And amazingly, I've managed to find an advert for it. Heartthrob, the new game from Milton Bradley where you get to pick from. Dogs, gorgeous guys. And try to decide who your friends will pick. Here's the guy for you. What a hump, check him out. Yeah, but his sneaker size is bigger than his IQ. So, come on, looks aren't everything. They're not. <laughs> Heartthrob from Milton Bradley. Totally serious. Okay, that was not a bit of a heartthrob, the dream date game from 1988, which looks to me like a cross between Blind Date, Tinder and Cluedo. Catherine, what was it? <laughs> So this is a board game and it was subtitled The Dream Game for Girls. And it, I think it came out in the late 80s. The point of the game was to guess which boyfriends your opponents would pick based on looks and little personality facts. So there was a stack of photo cards, each with the different guy on them. And you pick three at random, line them up on the board, and then you'd have three rounds. One of them was, would you like to go to the dance? Would you like to go to a party with me? And then the big one was, do you want to be my girlfriend? And with each round, you'd be given like more facts about the guy. So a fact might be, you know, he wants to move to Florida and wrestle alligators, or he has a life-size poster of himself. Or... <laughs> I mean, that's a really weird one, isn't it? Or he picks his nose in public. And with each round, you'd be trying to whittle down who you'd opt for out of the three and which your mates would go for. So as you say, it was kind of like Blind Date, but it's also kind of like imaginary Tinder, but for adolescents, which is really weird. Yeah, the thing that struck me the most about it was that it's, you know, it's reasonable they should have looked like this at the time, that the guys in it mostly look like either kind of generic just 17 model blokes i know this because i had a lot of sisters i saw a lot of these pictures ripped out and usually defaced but they would just have generic hunk posing for no reason they look like that or rejected new kids on the block there are a couple that look like that but there's one called trevor who looks like he's from about 1976 and he should be (laughs) touted as the next big thing because he's done a record where he plays the piano and sings about how he's just a guy that writes the music the music i'm the guy that writes it or something he doesn't look like he should be in this game at all No, there was there was a few like that. There was, you know, I can remember ones, maybe someone like called Gerald and he'd be on a kind of fold up picnic chair with a cricket jumper slung around his shoulders. <laughs> was and he, he supposed again, to be the English think, one by the chance? <laughs> yes, completely. It must have been. I think it's one of those things. That, I mean, I don't know whether boys would have had the equivalent, but I think that when you're playing a game like that with your friends, you also sort of figure out that there are only certain people that it's acceptable to fancy and you're trying to so part of the game is sort of meant to be you're trying to guess who your friends fancy but you're also trying to guess who it's okay for you to fancy and I can remember there being one I think it was called Jesse and he was definitely my favorite I think he had like a wet perm and was dressed a bit like a matador and I I definitely got the sense, though, from my friends that it like that he was an uncool person to fancy. So I was constantly trying to hide the fact that he was my favourite and possibly even lying when I say, oh, yeah, I'll go for someone else instead. So (laughs) I was going to say, did he inform your later choices? (laughs) 
I don't know. Well, I think he had a certain flamboyance to him, and I like a bit of flamboyance. <laughs> I, think, I think he looked a bit like Andrew Ridgely, sort of like, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, my, my tastes are eclectic. But anyway, moving on. It also had like a picture of some girls at a sleepover on the back of the board. And I can remember them kind of, they seemed to sort of like encapsulate everything aspirational about being a teenage girl. Like I think they had like a bowl of popcorn. They were all wearing Alice bands and kind of in different kind of matching pastel outfits. You can't, you wanted to be them and you wanted to, you wanted to be making the choices that they'd make, you know. <laughs> but also there's the thing about Heartthrob is that when I remember playing it, I think that it does upend quite a lot of stereotypes that people say about, oh, women, you know, they're much less superficial than men. And then when I remember playing it, I kind of think, I think maybe, I think all of us usually knew who we were going to go for at the beginning of the round and it wouldn't actually matter that much what weird facts you find out about a guy you kind of had decided at the beginning of the round who you were going to go for so i think girls can be quite superficial too well like you say there really was never a boys version of this it would have been hard to get boys to play it anyway but i think it would have seemed a bit creepy even at yeah. the time in the way weirdly i'm not sure that these would be considered acceptable now but there were so many games based around dating because obviously there was this, there was Dream Phone, there was Party Mania that Lydia Meisen talked about when she was on. There was that very weird Jason Donovan Straight from the Heart game. Oh, where yeah. I never could figure out who that was aimed at why. Didn't you have to make a jigsaw of him? That's incredible. I really want to play that. I never played That's a good thing I would have liked to have played that at the time. And the only place you'll see it now is in the Michelle Robergine sketches in Lexi Sale, where in the opening credits of them, he stood in front of a big row of boxes of Jason Donovan straight from the heart that's so brilliant that's so brilliant that's such a good touch but they wouldn't feel right now would they which is weird because the world is so much more geared toward well literally what this game you know implies the kind of yeah yeah no yeah yeah no i mean it started off with do you remember that hot or not website oh yeah yeah early on really weird was the one time i went on that i was going through photos and there was one genuinely of a woman with richard herring which is (laughs) the most unexpected thing ever but it's gone on for you see i remember thinking that was you know okay this is a crazy new world the way it's all gone now yeah ironically i think giving games like this to teenage girls will be considered very undesirable now i think so it's weird isn't it considering that when they get a bit older they'll you know they might well go on on tinder or whatever and it'll be something quite similar i mean another thing that's striking about it now is that you look at a game like that and the box is you know incredibly pink and there's something about even the image of the girls on the back kind of looking at these different guys and stuff and you think the implication that if you're a girl you've got to be into boys you know the pressure there is quite heavy and that's not necessarily you know it's not it's not good that if you decide that you like girls instead then you know you want to be able to like have that as an option so maybe maybe if they did it now they could do it but they'd do different versions so you'd have the freedom to to pick who you wanted to pick from can you imagine what the daily mail would have to say about that though i think (laughs) Peter Hitchens would explode. Actually, yeah, let's make it. Let's, let's yeah, flood the shops it. with it. Yeah. That's definitely very... It's so funny. It's also another thing that's really... We should late. make him one of the cards in it, actually. Peter Hitchens should be an option. <laughs> oh, that would be brilliant. That would be so good. Another thing that's really late 80s about it is that the pictures of the men are in black and white. <laughs> and that's so, you know, like the New Kids on the Block video for the right stuff. And... 
the video for Straight Up by Paula Abdul. There was just these kind of flurry of black and white videos at the end of the 80s that I thought were just the coolest thing in the world. And actually, the one for Straight Up was, you know, that's a David Fincher one, I think. Maybe everyone on dating apps should be having their pictures in black and white. Maybe this is the trick. Maybe we're just all... Also, it just does show you that if you have pictures of people posing with no context, almost everyone looks ridiculous. So when you, you know, when you're thinking about a game like Heartthrob, you kind of think, well, if I'm on a dating app and I'm presenting pictures of myself, I probably look as ridiculous as these guys do. So... The joke's on me now. I wonder who these guys actually were and where they are now. (laughs) They've never got recognised in the street by anyone from it. (laughs) Oh, that would be a great claim to fame. I was one of the guys in Heartthrob. So do you still own it or not? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think it got lost in a house move. It's nice, though. There are people, there's stuff online where people have reviewed it and there's a a certain amount of information you can get about it online. I told my niece about it, who's 14. She sounded quite keen to play it. So, (laughs) yeah, so there's clearly still a market out there for it. So if anyone wants wants to relaunch it, I think people would buy it. Okay, well, you might have been quite a huge fan of Heartthrob, but I suspect the couple of years earlier when you would have seen your next choice you probably thought the boys were full of this song from the ITV school show Good Health. Catherine, what was going on here? This was an episode of ITV's Good Health series that was made for schools. I wanted to pick it for this because it's one of my earliest TV memories and no one else seems to remember it and it feels painfully relevant to 2020. It was set in a school in Coventry and done like a sort of comedy panorama report meets a superhero film with kids playing all the parts on the smallest budget imaginable. And like the premise of it was that the germs busters headed up by this guy called Big G and they're fighting their nemesis who's called Dirty Gertie and her filthy fly. So basically the whole idea is that the villains are the germ spreaders. The germ busters, like the Ghostbusters, are trying to stamp out the germ spreaders. Yeah, good health. This is such a weird one for me to hear you say that, because it was a programme that we didn't watch in school. Apparently, it went on from 1974 to 1988, but they repeated them endlessly, I think, which is why everyone remembers the Blocker Boots one about the weird platform shoes that damage kids' feet. Again, that had the catchy song in it. I have a very, very vivid memory of one about eating too many sweets where there were kids carrying big wicked baskets for licorice all sorts was that not just sweet tooth it may have been because like i say we didn't say it in school i just saw bits of it when i was off school and i yeah. always had this thing about 
ITV schools programmes went way more off script than the BBC ones because the BBC ones were usually a presenter in a studio, quite educational. It'd be like Watch or something, and you get, you know, when they did sort of evolution, you'd have Louise and James singing, We're going to hang out the algae on the washing line to the tune of the Siegfried line. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, that sort of thing. It was framed that way. Whereas ITV, it was mostly film, mostly on location, mostly without a presenter, with weird bits in. And quite often, you didn't know where they ended, and the public information films that were sandwiched between them began because they looked the same and had kids that looked the same in them so it was really odd so i just used to see bits of good health and think what the hell is that (laughs) so did you actually watch it in school i don't know i think i was mainly shown it at home and I think I might have been shown it repeatedly. This is going to sound really weird, but my late dad was working at the time in the psychology department of the university, and he specialised in child development. And a big part of his research would be focused on peer modelling, where it's shown that the most effective way to influence a child's behaviour is to show them slightly older children displaying desired behaviour. And that's the way to, you know, get sort of influence a kid's behaviour rather than kind of directly telling them what to do. And I get a feeling that this would have been the kind of thing that he would have been quite impressed by because it had slightly older kids than I was. He could tell that I was really very drawn in by the narrative of it. And I remember him very vividly trying to get me to sing the song again and again. (laughs) (laughs) Because they they have a big number in the middle of it about washing your hands. I mean, the whole thing starts in the most sort of triggering way possible in terms of the year that we're in. It's a school rehearsal of a chorus line in the middle of singing the big song one a girl starts violently coughing and then complains that she has a fever and then from then they kind of go into the whole kind of germ investigation they've got a woman playing the reporter and everyone's got these really heavy fringes that were very common in the mid 80s i had one myself the person who's the big germ spreader this person called dirty gertie i think it's sort of like presented i've managed to catch up with a little bit of it because they put it on youtube recently and she's called dirty gertie and she's kind of presented as being this witch this sort of germ spreading witch but apparently i could because people who had been involved in the making of it had left some comments below the youtube video and apparently she was played by a really lovely and really clever boy called tim there's something sort of like quite interesting that they kind of chose to kind of get him to kind of play the witch. I mean, I suppose that around the same time, it would have been shown kind of big budget things like Star Wars and stuff. But for some reason, it's this that sticks in my mind more than so many things. If you look at it on, on YouTube, Dirty Gertie is really terrifying. I mean, sometimes I don't know why it is, but sometimes really small budget things can haunt a small person's consciousness the way that other things don't. Like at the end, they have the whole school trying to stamp out Dirty Gertie and the Dirty Fly by attacking them with a massive bar of soap, which is obviously made out of cardboard <laughs> and, you know, a whole bunch of hoses. It really stuck in my mind. And I think I was sort of riveted by it and kind of loved it, but at the same time was really scared by it. Well, I'll come back to that effect of it in a second. But it's interesting that you mentioned that people who were involved with it left comments underneath it. Because I've been trying to find out because the kids in it, for a production of this type and for kids acting around that time are pretty good yes and i couldn't tell whether the credits just mention the school that are involved it doesn't say whether the school performed it or whether the school was just the location it was filmed couldn't find any details about anyone who was in it all i thought was one of the kids 
looked a little bit like Paul Varney, who people probably know better was later in the pop group Yell, but he was a child actor originally. Doesn't appear to be him. So were they just school kids? I think they were. I think they had, someone said, I think it was the person that actually played the lead reporter. She said that they got a week off school to film it and that they felt like film stars doing it. I mean, they're really good. Like considering that you can, you can tell that they just sort of had to do it. They probably would have had to do it in quite a rush. It's really, you know, it's really fantastic. And I hope they all know what an impression they made on so many children. You are right. There is a creepy, in a old fashioned sense of creepy, yeah. sense to things like this that you know they were made on a shoestring budget there were production decisions that you know obviously were made for money but when you're a kid you can't understand why somebody would say for example have a big bar or so that's made out of cardboard everything's on that really cheap and nasty 60 millimeter 70s film quite often they didn't bother repairing the scratches on the film when they were processing it and it just burnt in the finished program i can think of a lot of images like that from similar programs around that time with no idea what the program was that were burnt into memory at an early age because you just kind of feeling what the hell is this how has this ended up on television it doesn't look like something that should be on television it doesn't look like call my bluff or something yeah you know you're reassured by the fact there are desks there there are people sat behind them and they seem to know (laughs) when to speak things like this seem to just start as well there's no context to them they just appear from nowhere and then disappear yes i think that's it isn't it i think that when you're young you actually have a really good sense of what's eerie like you you know you're probably in quite a kind of primal way kind of getting used to the stuff that makes you feel sort of secure and safe so that when something as you say sort of comes up and you think hang on this isn't normal. This doesn't feel like the other stuff. I, I don't feel reassured. That's probably the stuff that sticks in your mind. And when I was watching a bit of it again, you know, you, you go into Dirty Gertie's lair and she's sort of saying things like, oh, lovely. Do you remember the plague? What lovely plagues we had? Well, I remember the Black Death. How lovely that was. And you'll kind of be listening to that when you're young and you won't even kind of quite know what she's referring to, but it will feel really haunting. And and there was something about the fact that you could see that all of the people were played by people that are just a little bit older than you. As you say, that probably added to the feeling of, should this be on? What is that? You know, are are there adults in charge? Yeah, that was another thing. There didn't seem to be anyone. As I said, there were anchors on the BBC programmes, the BBC schools programmes. It felt like someone was in charge. With here, Experiment, which is the science one, with the, you know, the narration and just close-ups of bits of experiments and so on. It just felt that it was happening of its own volition. And things like, there was Stop, Look, Listen, which is narrated by Chris Tarrant, which is a kind of look-at-life documentary strand. I think he was never envisioned. I think he just narrated it. But it just yeah. seemed to go on of its own accord. And it had, for no reason, theme music. And it sounded like Focus were having a bad day in the studio, <laughs> really angry with each other. It just didn't seem like it sat right, like it should be for children. Not in an appropriate way. No, just I know. Like exactly it felt like it wasn't you... made for them. I know exactly what. I mean, do you think that that's something that only people that were kids in the 80s have a sense of? Because. I do wonder there's something maybe also just like the fact that you get that kind of synthy music sometimes. And I'll think, synth, you know, I mean, I, I really love kind of sparse synth music, but it can be really scary. <laughs> 
And sometimes we have it as just a backdrop in some of these programmes. And there's also the fact that, as we've mentioned, around that time they just kept repeating things again and again. But yeah. fashion and technology was moving on so quickly at that point that something even from like 18 months earlier would seem really weirdly out of touch. And things like this, you know, the hairstyles in it, by the time I would have seen it, people didn't really have the hair like the lead presenter character anymore, you know, and the no. music was a little bit out of step. And when yeah. that happens, you can't put your finger on about how it feels like a relic that's still with you. It's like if we had still been watching around the time we would be watching Bagpuss or whatever, the Flower Pop Men or Ragtag and Bobtail, which are only, you know, a couple of years out of circulation by that point. Yes. But that would have felt really weird. And I think this is just a couple of years later's version of that. Yeah, it's a strange thing, isn't it? I suppose also you had around that time, you would have had kind of people like Alan Parker kind of creating the stuff involving sort of children playing adults that in comparison, you might have been shown Bugsy Malone and stuff and that in comparison would sort of look quite, quite slick. And then there'd be this kind of thing that would really stick in your mind. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I quite love it though when I sort of realize that particularly your brain when you're younger isn't kind of wired to respond to, to budget. It sometimes it'll just ignore, like, you know, just like the way you can give a child sometimes like a really expensive toy and then give them a cardboard box and it's a cardboard box that will really grip their imagination. That's the thing that they'll be obsessed with for the next few days. It's, you know, stuff like this sort of reminds me of that. You can think, actually, that's the thing. Like sometimes, if, if people just do something that seems, as you say, quite eerie, but also quite well executed with, you know, with basically kind of no money and then it just sort of disappears. That's the thing that you'll, you'll remember better than anything. OK, well, for your next choice, moving on to something that was very much up to the minute when it was first broadcast. I'm not sure how well it will have aged now, but I can't even explain what's going on here. So let's just have a <laughs> clip and talk about it in a minute. Marriage to Figaro, but Catherine, what context was this in? This was a BBC TV production of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro that aired over a bank holiday weekend. I can't remember which one. It might have been New Year's Day 1995. It was, yeah. <sighs> 94 into 95, yeah. I'm high-fiving myself. They did it in three parts, and they'd updated the action from the late 18th century to the present day. And instead of it being set in a palace near Seville, it was in a National Trust property in England. And the Count Almaviva for this production is a philandering Conservative MP who keeps trying it on with his wife's maid, Susanna, who's engaged to Figaro. It felt incredibly, in some ways, sort of kind of quite dangerous because it was shot like a sitcom. It felt quite, I don't think it was 
aired live, but it felt very live. It was extremely bawdy. It starred Harry Burton and it had Nigel Planer in it. So you had that kind of element of British comedy kind of meeting opera in a way that felt quite interesting. And I think it was directed by Jeff Posner, who had done stuff like Not the Nine O'Clock News and The Young Ones. And I think at the time was doing quite a lot of Steve Coogan's stuff. And yeah, it just felt really kind of silly, but also kind of quite brilliant because it was kind of sort of breaking down some of the sort of boundaries between different forms, I guess. It's like to watch an opera that felt like quite a sort of cheap sitcom felt really different. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there because it does have the look of something like An Actor's Life for Me or another early 90s BBC One sitcom. (laughs) Not quite Birds of a Feather, but you know, it's got that kind of, the costumes are like something from a prime time early 90s BBC sitcom but I think it was part of there was a drive around that point to make opera more accessible I think it comes from Ness and Dormer being the World Cup theme in 1990 right okay getting into the I think it got in the top five didn't it there was a concerted effort around that point to try and break down you know the the rarefied world around opera because there was that Harry Enfield's Guide to Opera series or all kinds of Howard Goodall programs where he tried to demystify it yeah because opera on TV before this it was kind of you know you think of Channel 4 on Christmas Day in the 80s they'd do you know some obscure Italian opera in the original costumes where it was a comedy ostensibly you know the audience would go (laughs) with some lines you're thinking what are they talking about? But yeah. this was a very definite attempt to emphasise the fact that humour in this is universal. And it's a shame that that movement didn't really take off in the way it should have done. And it always makes me think of the stuff that Armando Yanucci's done about his love of opera. Particularly, he did a great book called Hear Me Out. But he also did a number of interval talks on Radio 3 where they were quite irreverent, possibly in a lot of ways that the audience wouldn't have been expecting. There's one that really resonated with me called Mobile Phones Off, which was basically almost a travelogue of him walking to the opera in Covent Garden and feeling out of place amongst all the, you know, the real kind of snobs mingling in the foyer and the people with their ridiculous clothing and ridiculous opera glasses in the the auditorium. You know, he's a cultured, quiet man who really loves all this stuff and he feels out of place in all that. It's a the hostile world that's trying to keep people out. And I wonder what proper in the Vertigo's opera go has actually made this presentation, The Marriage of Figaro. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I think that there probably would have been a lot of people that were quite contemptuous of it. My perspective of it might have been slightly different because of being Welsh and also a couple of sort of, well, five years before this was made, Bryn Tedevel had come second in the Cardiff Singer of the World and he's from where I'm from and you know like we weren't there at the same time but I went to the same school as Alan Jones and I think maybe in Wales the relationship to just sort of you know to music in general might feel a little bit more fluid than say if you had grown up around London because that's the thing when I went and lived in London I could kind of see that there was much more of a kind of of a feeling because of sort of being around places like the Royal Opera House where you might associate going to the opera with kind of needing sort of unspeakable amounts of wealth in order to be able to go on a regular basis because it's so incredibly expensive. Also, another thing about The Marriage of Figaro is that it's based on the original play that it's based on by Beaumarchais is a farce and it's 
silly. So the thing that it's based on is really actually something that's quite close to a sitcom. So presenting it in this kind of way is actually reasonably authentic to the feel of the particular piece, if you see what I mean. So even though it kind of felt like quite a radical thing to be doing in its own way, you're not kind of going as far out of kind of the reasonable bounds of expectation as you might think. It's much more to do with, as you say, people associating opera with this idea of you, you know, needing to be a particular kind of person living a particular kind of life and there being all of these sort of unnecessary barriers that have kind of built up over the years well that's it i think it does the original text a disservice when people present things in this kind of exclusive way for the sake of accuracy and take all the charm out of them i mean you know there are things like i won't go down the whole road of pointing out that most of scott walker's records are quite funny but people try to paint them as kind of oh i'm so suicidal and only he understands me and like he was hang on he was making jokes most of the time but the treatment of things like this in the traditional sense is to me it's a bit like the way you know most dickens adaptations are very serious and dramatic and straight-faced and most of the actual books are hilarious that's why the personal history of david copperfield worked so well was it treated it as a comedy outright i mean it'd be a bit like doing you know doing a new jeeves and worcester series and doing them as like you know hard-hitting drama yeah completely exactly i mean that's the thing people start to lose the thread of what these things are everything becomes unnecessarily kind of tied to certain kind of lifestyles rather than actually paying attention to what the original text requires you know I was growing up on Anglesey where you didn't it it took you quite a long time to you had to drive for 20 minutes before you got to a theatre and and then you, you might only see certain touring productions at certain times and so a lot of my exposure to theatre came from what I saw on TV and I and it feels retrospectively like at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s you've got maybe a little bit more theatre on TV that would just be sort of naturally mixed in with the other stuff you'd be watching on your channel like they had I don't know if you remember but they had theatre night on Sunday nights I think kind of that ran from like 88 to 91 or something like that and they just you know like on a Sunday night they'd just show an Oscar Wilde comedy or um, something by Harold Pinter and they'd have just a whole host of people in it like you know, they might have Timothy West and Prunella Scales, you know, Helen the Burnham Carter, but then they also might have someone like Patsy Kensit in one of them. Les Dawson was in one. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, there you go. That's the thing. It's like, I feel like my negative associations with, you know, any of these kind of things that are associated with highbrow bits of culture have actually kind of come more from, you know, moving about the world as an adult. And you might, as, you know, Amando Anucci has, you know, experienced, as you say, sort of encounter certain snobberies in certain areas and people kind of sometimes kind of being a little bit snooty about how art is received. But back then it felt more like, you know, my sister and I might have a tape that we just, you know, we might have taped an episode of Fry and Laurie and then we might have taped a George Bernard Shaw play off the TV and then we might have taped an episode of French and Saunders, you know, and it would just all just be on one thing and you just enjoy it all in the same way because it's not actually that different to one another, if you see what I mean. And you wouldn't think about kind of what each thing was carrying with it in terms of sort of the idea of affluence or or whatever, you know. Well, we're staying in really in the highbrow arena for your last. <laughs> choice i can't think of better way of introducing this ladies your moment has come take it away
Okay, that was a record that I'm very, very fond of. We'll come back to that. That's True to Us by Vanilla, which I think even people who make fun of Vanilla have never heard. <laughs> Catherine, why do you remember this record? So True to Us was by Vanilla, and they're a girl band from Barnet, and they rose to fame in the late 90s by releasing a song in 1997 called No Way, No Way, which is now quite famous for being what many consider to be one of the worst ever singles to reach the top 20 of the UK charts. True to Us was their only other single, and no one seems to remember it, I guess because, I don't know, people are usually sort of wired to remember the negative stuff and less about the stuff that, you know, they might have more positive thoughts on. And I think it just sticks in my mind because I remember quite liking this and taping it off the radio. And it represents that moment, I think, when the kind of tidal wave of girl bands who have been created to sort of emulate the Spice Girls' success reached a sort of saturation point. Because I think maybe in the same summer that this was released, Jerry Halliwell left the Spice Girls and the whole thing felt like a bit of end of an era, you know. But I am a fan of Vanilla because <laughs> the, they get so viciously slagged off for merely existing. And that in itself makes me think that they must have done something right. Well, it's funny you should say that because there was a rumour around the time that No Way No Way was out because, no, that was, was it 1997 that was? But that was just after Brass Eye had been on and it was before Blue Jam started and Chris Morris fandom was a new thing and it just emerged online because it really started when Brass Eye was postponed the first time and there were a number of people, including myself on the Channel 4 message board saying why won't you show this? Who later went on to found all kinds of things like TV Cream and you know various Chris Morris sites yeah. and so on all splintered out from there but you know there was less information in those days and there was a more he wasn't revered like a godlike figure at that point it was more people were just interested to see what he'd do next and there were quite a few rumours some of which have never quite been explained like there was a rumour that he'd written a pilot script called Fear of a Black Planet about a global black uprising I wish that was true. I wish that had been made. Yeah, that would be amazing. But there was another rumour that Vanilla were part of something intended for a second series of Brass Eye. Because, again, it gets forgotten in the run-up to Brass Eye. Bits of what was going on did leak out. I mean, he was on the time, the place, posing as an expert. Things turned up in the newspapers about cake and so on. And people genuinely believe for a while because no way no way is such an insane record by anyone's standards lots of people really thought it was leading towards a stunt but apparently it was a genuine genuine attempt at forging a hit career so it's definitely not true then there never appears to have been the second series of brass eye on the cards let's put it that way okay that is interesting i i mean i i can see why you might have thought that because there's something about the choice of the song them doing no way no way and it although i don't know in some ways it's just this a a kind of like do you think it was just a, a sort of a sort of attempt to just kind of like cash in on a tune that people already know and then... Oh, absolutely. Looking back, I now think it was just that because people knew Manamana, which had sort of made the kind of weird comeback at that point. I think it'd been on a couple of adverts and so on. I think Harry Hill used it in some of his early material. So it was around, and I think it was just a very badly misjudged attempt at, you know, scoring a hit, which they did do, but for the wrong reasons. And obviously, True To Us, which, it, for my money, is a really good song. Came yeah, in on the I back like... of that, and everyone ignored it, because it just thought, no way, no way, it was ridiculous. No, that's the thing. It was, it was kind of unfortunate for them, because they sort of eclipsed their own good one, didn't they, with No Way, No Way. And yeah, True To Us sort of reminded me me of there was this Motive 8 remix of Dubstar's Stars 
that had been out a couple of years before and it reminded me a bit of that and also it's a little bit similar to records that were out by do you remember the song disremembrance by danny minogue i do now yes yeah i forgot about that yeah well this is the thing which is another another record that people don't talk about now but is really quite good it it was just a really it was quite a weird time to be a teenage girl that moment in the mid 90s because like i remember i sort of started the decade dressed in my sister's unwanted monsters of rock t-shirts and tartan shirts and then you went into the Britpop era where you and your mates were sort of trying to emulate the style of the trendsetters. And I suppose they would have been kind of led by Oasis and Blur. And, you know, like I remember sort of going with my then boyfriend to Chester and him buying two Oasis T-shirts and HMV and me thinking, oh, my God. Two different ones. Yeah, <laughs> Well, probably not. They were probably the same. I can remember thinking this is an obsession. It's out of control. <laughs> you know, the Gallagher brothers are just like a, a just ruling, ruling everything in a way that's kind of feeling quite oppressive. And then the Spice Girls came along. And then within six months or whatever, suddenly like being in a gang of like young women was sort of like this look. It was this sort of potential commodity. And if you were like in a group of girls, which I was, you know, if you're wandering around and one of you, you know, was redhead and one of you had blonde hair and there was just a bit of variation the way that you looked like lads would just be shouting at you Spice Girls in the street and stuff like it was quite a sort of strange moment to experience that thing where suddenly just being in a group of girls and in a way that people wouldn't have noted before at all in in light of the Spice Girls just becoming this huge thing it kind of changed everything in that way oh absolutely I mean I think possibly with some justification you know it wouldn't be looked back on too kindly now but I do remember the effect that that sudden girl group explosion had on friends of mine at the time that it was as though there was renewed confidence like you say there wasn't that much objection to lads shouting Spice Girls and so on no at that point I mean it would be viewed as favourably now but in a way I remember some women that knew around them finding that quite liberating and the, the way that you know the dress code changed as well it was more confident you know there were a lot of big Florence from the Magic Roundabout trainers going on you yeah, know that them, would have been yeah. considered unladylike previously it would have been sensible shoes or Doc Martens before that probably I'm probably stereotyping a bit but you know you know what I mean there no was no a, I completely know what you there mean there was a wider palette really yes exactly exactly Exactly. And because they because Sporty Spice was sort of dressed generally in sort of quite a way where sort of the the Britpop way of kind of dressing where we would have been kind of going around town in our Converse trainers and T-shirts. You know, you could still dress like that if you wanted to. But then if you if you did want to wear a dress, that area, it suddenly sort of made that also kind of okay and a look. And I think maybe my friend's and I thought that they were kind of generally being marketed to people younger than we were. So it didn't necessarily feel like something that was being marketed towards us. It felt kind of possibly more towards kids. But I do remember that moment when they came and did Who Do You Think You Are at the Brit Awards. And that did feel like a kind of quite a moment. I do remember watching that as, you know, I must have been like about 14, 15. And as you say, feeling quite sort of liberated by it. Because it's not, you know, like it's quite a famous performance because of Jerry wearing that Union Jack dress and so on and so forth. But it's not actually, you know, an amazingly slick performance. And I think they're miming and that in itself sort of goes to show sort of what a moment it was in terms of just sort of presenting young women as you don't have to be impossibly glamorous. You can look look you know this is just a group of women they look like you and your mates do they're becoming the biggest thing in pop music and 
they're sort of, you know, they're eclipsing everyone else. And that kind of feeling as a young woman sort of, you know, you kind of watching them doing that and kind of think, oh, this is fun. This is kind of quite good. But unfortunately for poor old Vanilla, I mean, you had the Spice Girls and you had All Saints somehow managed to pull it off as being the rivals. But everyone that came after that, you know, were, were not unreasonably. You know, I wouldn't even say it was an attempt to jump a bandwagon. It was just people thought, this is popular. Why don't we try something like that? Because you can say many things about no way, no way, but it's not trying to copy the Spice Girls. It's entirely its own thing. But any of these groups that came like Vanilla were a bit like somebody like Manta Ray or Linoleum was to Britpop. You know, they arrived just too late just weren't actually you can't say vanilla weren't distinguished enough but no way no way reminds me of sort of my early clubbing days because although you know i was going to sort of indie 60s Britpop clubs with all my friends around that time when we got in we would watch the box on cable tv which was does anyone remember the box but it was a channel where people used to phone up for videos to be played and obviously some would be played more than others like after a while the take that ones were almost worn out i found heaven start to go you know it poured through so much that the sound was nearly gone but people kept phoning in for true to us and we were obsessed with it and one of my friends who i won't say who but she has been on the show previously okay first time she saw vanilla remarked they look like some of these gene spliced the spice girls of razzle i apologize to any vanilla if you're watching but it made everyone laugh at the time we were obsessed with true to us we loved it we loved how weirdly cheap and nasty but compelling the video was yeah well they had them kind of dressed did they sort of have them dressed in a in a kind of version of school uniforms sort of kind of brit pop school uniforms yes yeah yeah which again was quite a big thing again this wouldn't sit well now but there was a quite a big kind of school disco revival thing with ironic school uniform things and yeah later by that same group of friends i was told off repeatedly chasing vanilla women as they put it <laughs> because everyone dressed like that at that point <laughs> i've never been allowed to live that comment down <laughs> the thing is though i reckon if the spice girls hadn't took off they probably would have had exactly the same jokes made about them. Because I think they probably did, until it became clear that they were going to become massively successful, I don't think that they were being taken particularly seriously, or not ne- or not more seriously than any other girl band, if you see what I mean. So sometimes these things are just to do with who happens to take off. Absolutely not. I mean, and really, is it that far from No Way, No Way to Wannabe, which is a bit of a novelty record when you think about it. I think it was only with Say You'll Be There that anyone sort of seriously as more than just some rhythmically shouting women who did a couple of lines each yeah completely i think it's a lot of it is just down to production isn't it it's just that the production sounds better on the spice girls records i mean it is it's like i looked at some of the there are kind of various things that people have written online about vanilla and people are people are quite vicious about the way vanilla looked in a way that i don't get at all like to my mind they just look like you know a group of conventionally attractive women you know but there's something about the fact that they had that song no way no way which kind of still makes it into charts doesn't it of kind of like the worst songs ever released that kind of makes them sort of fair game i think well people like to have an easy thing to hate i mean you look at weirdly their closest contemporaries would be menswear who for my money they weren't going to change the world they were an all right band for what they were they had some good singles yeah but people love to they can't find anyone else to hate out of Britpop, which is weird because you know even if you like oasis and blur there are some issues you could have with the front men of both bands for a start oh, but you know you can't 
can't really pick on Elastica because Elastica were consistently good. The Boo Radleys with their own thing. There's nobody that has that weakness apart from menswear. So they just get the kicking all the time. And Vanilla are like that. People don't like to have to think for themselves about what they like and don't like. They don't like to have to think up their own jokes. So they reach for what's available. And it's poor old Vanilla. I bet there were worse girl groups around that everyone's just forgotten. There must have been. Oh, definitely. And also, not to sort of sound biased, but I have to say, like in the 90s, there was some really bland boy bands that were so forgettable, churning out sort of ballads that you just never, you know, you wouldn't be able to remember again. It was all ballads, wasn't it? That's all they did. People like Another Level and Worlds Apart. (laughs) Exactly. It's just ballads. Exactly. So when people are like, you know, Vanilla are the worst, but you kind of think there were way, (laughs) I, I would rather listen to No Way, No Way than any of those ballads by those boy bands. And also, I understand where they were going with it. I mean, it's like, it's in the kind of tradition of, you know, telling a pushy guy to kind of back off if you did i know what boys like by the waitresses with really really bad production (laughs) 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 hear me out hear me out really bad kind of production in the you know sort of like 90s sort of style you could make it i think in the end sound a bit like that do you know what i mean it's like that kind of same deadpan back off don't push me thing. I mean, it's, I read a blog online about them and someone had sort of made the point where they were sort of saying that because both of their songs were kind of cashing in on this idea of feminism at the time, that that made it a much more exploitative outfit than if they hadn't have been, which I thought was quite funny, this idea that like, you know, that it would have been better if, you know, both of their records hadn't have been, you know, the kind of thing of like, you've got to respect my boundaries, you know. So this idea that after the Spice Girls, if you were going to be doing anything that kind of touched on girl power, touched on kind of like, you know, sort of women's emancipation, then you were just cashing into a sort of cynical capitalist plan, you know. Quite well, you know what they really should have done to guarantee success and longevity? They just have got Dr. Dreg Gosling to do a dub version for the piece. Catch me, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Wild's Henry the Eighth to Awesome Doom by Ed the Duck. More details at timworthington.org.